Hey, Miles. Yeah, Cam? Have you ever heard of Legend of the Guardians, the Owls of Gahul? I think you're mixing up the whole uh, Avatar thing with uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. You'd think that, but you were wrong. Okay. Hello, people of the internet, and welcome back to Inconceivable Media. I'm Cam. I'm Miles. And this week, I introduce Miles to a sort of obscure animated film called Legend of the Guardians, The Owls of Gahul. Legend of the Guardians, we'll just just stick with calling Legend of the Guardians for right now, is a 2010 animated film brought to us by Zack Snyder. Yes, Zack Snyder, where we follow Soren, who's voiced by Jim Sturgis, a young owlet, and several of his friends on a journey to learn if the titular guardians do exist, and if they can help them in their time of need. As always, first things first, did you enjoy this film, Miles? Yes, I absolutely enjoyed this. I think it was an excellent movie, and I feel like more movies could really learn from this. Really? Yeah. Hmm feel like you can't just say that without giving us a, just a tiny little bit more. Well, unfortunately, I can't because that would give away a little bit too much of the plot in that. And uh, let's just say everything flows very nicely. Mm-hmm. It goes from A to B to C very well. And at the end of the day, I don't think I have a single complaint about this. All right. Okay, perfect. Were you at all surprised to learn who directed this? I know you've seen 300 and I know you've seen Watchmen. I'm not sure if you did watch Man of Steel, Batman v Superman, or any of the other ones, but I know you saw those two. So with that... I have seen Man of Steel as well as Batman v Superman. Oh, okay. uh, Unfortunately. And I can say that uh, (laughs) it isn't too surprising that Zack Snyder did actually do this movie because of his use of slow motion. It's kind of his little thing. It's sort of like how Michael Bay sexualizes explosions. Uh, Every every director kind of has their own thing that makes them and draws people into their movies Mm. Uh, so again Zack Snyder is his use of slow motion Michael Bay is his sexualization of explosions James Cameron is unbelievable world building cool although I will say it's not that it's slow motion is the thing very specifically when it comes to Snyder's style the term that's used is speed ramping Because it's the effect of it, it's not just the slowing down, but then it's also the ramping the speed back up to go back into real time sort of thing. Anyways, would you recommend this film to others? I would recommend this to others, but there are people I wouldn't recommend this to because there are people who don't like watching movies about animals with human-like personalities, even though, ironically, animals and people do have very similar personalities. They kind of each have their thing of the shy one, the timid one, the uh, outgoing one, the curious one. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's all there. It's just that the communication is different, if you ask me. Uh, I don't think I would say that this movie should be age-restricted. Um, 
but I so in that so in that way you would recommend it to anyone no matter what age they are yes as long as parents are watching too like I said I really like this movie I don't think I have any real issues with it so awesome I feel that I I I feel that more people need to be saying that about this movie in the sense that more people need to see this movie yes but for now before we get into spoilers I feel we should put on a little Owl City Yes, yes, we will. And then we'll see you later for some to talk about some spoilers. And uh, take this opportunity, if you haven't seen this, go and find a way to watch it. Awake the stars, cause they are all around you. Wide eyes will always brighten the blue. Chase your dreams and remember me, sweet bravery. Cause after all those All right, everyone, and we're back, and now we're gonna digging into everything for Legends of the Guardians. Uh, and speaking of, there are thirty-one books in the Owls of Gahul series. You know, it's kind of like Redwall in that way of just how big the universe is. Um, but I bet they don't have a podcast based on a D and D adventure through their timeline. You know, I feel like maybe that's a project we can work on in the future. Yeah. If I'm able to actually sit down and read 31 books, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they have the same problem of, uh, like, mole speech like they do in uh, the Redwall books. <laughs> but anyways, the, this film is an adaptation of the first three novels, which kind of cover the first big arc of the series. Um, I guess I should say the Guardians of Gahul is what the name of the series as written by Catherine Lasky. So the first chapter of where we begin our story with the two brothers Soren and Clud. Soren is a dreamer that is infatuated with the tales of the Guardians of Gahul, and this is an enthusiasm that is not shared by Clud. After an incident during flying practice, the two are kidnapped and taken to a place called St. Agelius, home for orphaned owls, where they join many other owlets who have also been taken to work or serve the pure ones. Soren and Clud are marked to be part of the pure ones as they are Titos. Titos. But Sorn shows too much sympathy towards an elf owlet known as Sylphie. Sylphie, well. <laughs> <laughs> and as punishment is sent to be a picker, while Clud trains to be a soldier. Sorn and Sylphie's actions do not go unnoticed and begin training in a secret or begin training in secret with Grimble, another servant of the Pure Ones, that wants revenge possibly to atone for all the horrible things he has done in their name and being, essentially. Mm-hmm. And then after a daring escape, Soren and Sylphie meet up with two older owls named Digger and Twilight, and then they continue their journey to find the Guardians of Gahul. After many hardships, they make it to the tree spoken of in the stories, and the group is welcomed with open arms to do... Basically, the same things they were doing under the Pure Ones, except without all the cruelty that came along with serving the Pure Ones. When first arriving and explaining why they sought the Guardians, Soren explains that the leader of the Pure Ones, Metalbeak, is amassing an army with the intent to wipe out the Guardians, 
and subjugate all owls everywhere. To make a long story short, they do battle, and Soren kills Metalbeak, and Clud is presumed dead, but his body was never recovered, leaving a nice cliffhanger for a sequel that, at the time of this recording, <laughs> no sequel has been made. Yes. <laughs> you never know. It, it, it could happen. Right. What do, what do you think about me saying that with the, when they go and they are part of the community with the Guardians about how I say they are effectively doing the same things that they were doing at the school for orphaned owls? I mean, at the end of the day, a lot like society, uh, everybody has to do their jobs to make society move forward, mm -hmm. keep everybody alive and keep everything happening. So you're right. It's the same things uh, by all means. When you take a look at both capitalism and communism, they were both doing the same things. It's just that capitalism had the uh, the push the push forward of economics and wealth, whereas communism was more of a you're helping your fellow man, you're making things easier and better for everybody else. Mm -hmm. So, is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? It doesn't matter because it's the same thing. And that is to continue on the race. Mm -hmm. So is it a bad thing that they're both doing the same thing? No, because at the end of the day, it's all about survival. Right. So it is interesting that you say capitalism and communism, which I mean, you're not wrong there. But the interesting thing here is that the pure ones very much are supposed to be the stand-ins for Nazis. Like they are very much like fascism. Uh, without saying that ideologies and mm -hmm. that yeah right with the fact that the taito owls are the ones that will reign supreme over all the other owls oh i think you meant to say the aryan owls i mean <laughs> you know considering <laughs> that the queen is pure white yes at first when i saw her i thought she was a snow owl but i guess that's uh she's an albino maybe uh, yeah, and considering the fact that the king and queen of the guardians are both snow owls. Um, and I mean, you can tell the difference there with the, you know. Anyways, uh, although speaking of characters, I suppose maybe we should uh, dig in a little bit more with uh, who we have here. So first we've got Soren, who is voiced by Jim Sturgis, who is a young idealistic owl. Um, he and his brother Clud are both Taitos, which I believe are basically just barn owls. What did you think? Uh, what are your thoughts on Soren? Personally, I feel Soren is kind of bland for a protagonist. Uh, it feels, it feels kind of like the whole Bella syndrome from Twilight. Really? Where somebody can like put themselves into this, into their shoes and be along for the journey. Oh, Okay. Yeah, he doesn't really have a specific personality, I would say. Uh, okay. Like, yeah, sure, he's a dreamer, but, mm -hmm. I mean, who couldn't be a dreamer, right? You, that is a very, that's a very valid point. I was about to say his, his brother is not much of a dreamer, but that's not true. They have different dreams. They have different goals. Yeah. They have different ways of thinking what is appropriate for getting to their goals. So, again, with saying that he's kind of bland, would you say that in the sense that he just he has to do all of the hero things and he just does them. Not really. I, I don't know how I feel about that. Like, like I said, I don't think, I think he does it because he has to. I mean, like he, he's done things that don't make him a hero. He did push his brother, uh, 
Clud to go flying when they got captured. Uh, he's that's true. That's a good point. So, and then like he does do things that you know a hero wouldn't do too. It, it like it happens. Like I said, I just feel like him as a character, he doesn't have any other personality. And you know that's fine. Sometimes you just need to have the one character be sort of an avatar for the reader. Yeah. Kind of blank slate so that you can imprint on them and kind of feel that you are the one that are doing these things. That's exactly what I mean by the whole Bella syndrome. Okay. This is the, you know, I feel like this is the first time I've really spoken about Twilight in like a serious conversation in forever. Well, it's such a bad movie that like, it, <laughs> you know, you gotta, you, you really pick it apart, but like it, it has points about it so that's true Let, let's carry on that's with true characters. <laughs> so next we have clud uh soren's brother who is voiced by ryan quantin um so clud very much every chance he's given to i guess do the right thing as far as his brother is concerned he does the wrong thing and he joins the pure ones willingly. He stays with the pure ones. He does uh, everything to be with the bad guys. You can't see me, but, you know, I keep using scare quotes for certain things because this is a very black and white story, right? You have... I guess so, yeah. Well, you're the one who said that to me after we finished watching this. Yeah, it's very black and white. <laughs> There's not really a... There... There aren't really a whole lot of shades of gray over who are the good ones and who are the bad ones in this story. <laughs> um, okay, so so what do you feel about Clud then? I feel he's very much a Judas of the family. Uh, he's very susceptible to cult encouragement. Uh-huh. I guess it's because he's kind of the uh, stuck in the shadow of his brother. Mm-hmm. And he just doesn't want that anymore. And somebody comes along and says, hey, look, like you're actually special. You're different. You can be better than all this. Of course, he's going to be the kind of guy that steps up and goes, oh, yes, I was right all along. You know, I'm my brother is actually just, you know, my parents are probably doing this because he's worse or something, you know. It's interesting that you say Judas, and I know that that's because Judas is the betrayer. But I think you're actually thinking of a different disciple because I believe it's Peter is the one who denies that he is the one who denies knowing Jesus three times. Yeah, I guess you are right about that. Um, well, I would say that uh, <laughs> this guy's definitely a betrayer because he goes back to his family and takes a, takes the That's daughter, true. Right? That's true, too. So he's uh, he's a definitely a super betrayer. Uh, as In terms of like aligning as Judas, uh, yeah, I know which character you're talking about, mm-hmm. and I do agree with you on that. I mean, the whole mythos of lycanthropy mm-hmm. or lycanthrope depending how you like to pronounce it right is the fact that uh because judas betrayed jesus for silver he gets ah, turned into a werewolf and that is his and weakness that's why, silver. Mm-hmm. so like i do understand that um that makes a lot of sense but this is the first time hearing of that well welcome to the occult special <laughs> you gotta get like a little uh cue button so when miles <laughs> talks about his occult stuff he can Hit the I like button it. And continue yeah, but, on. yeah, but I like it when I learn things like this because I sit there and I go, "Wow, so that's why it's silver, huh?" 
Yes, it's because he was paid in silver. And, of course, his punishment will be the fact that silver hurts him. So what do you think about him, then, in comparison to Soren? So Soren, you think, is kind of bland. So then what do you think about Clud then, from, like, the antagonist perspective? Well, he does have a personality, I would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's been repressed. So, of course, he's angry. He's mad. He doesn't like his brother. And when he gets the chance to give his brother freedom from his uh, en- enslavement, I guess you would say, mm-hmm. he says, no, he's not good enough. Because he doesn't want, you know, it's a bit of that insecurity of like, oh, well, I know my brother's a good flyer and I have to struggle to do it and be good at it. He's better than me. So Mm -hmm. I don't want him to be better than me because I'm actually going somewhere with this. So he's afraid. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's, I guess, one of the other reasons why he's so so susceptible to just falling in with the pure ones. Yes, because they make him feel safe Mm -hmm. to a point. Mm-hmm. And they're able to just really use the fear against him. Mm-hmm. Uh, next on our characters, um, I guess in terms of who we meet immediately, we then have Sylphie, who is voiced by Emily Barkley. So she's an elf owl, which I did not know was a thing before watching this movie. I learned so much about owls watching this movie. I did know about elf owls. <laughs> I know that they come from the deserts and that. Oh, okay, so like, so, so that's legit. When they said that they found her in the desert, yes, uh, elf owls are actually known to be living in cacti. Really? Yes, they they find a way of like gnawing a hole into the cactus. Ah, so that they can bats. get around, so and that's they... why they're so small. Oh, cool! See, this is a great movie. Look at all the things that we get to learn out of it. <laughs> so, what do you think about Sylphie? Um, as you know her character the navigator (laughs) so sylphie is young she's very Mm -hmm. young and that's very uh it's very predominant but i will say that she is very wise and Mm -hmm. very knowledgeable because she knows about like this whole uh moon blinking thing that happens to brainwash the other owls and she knows it she remembers it and says and realizes what they're trying to do and she can warn people about it so she's very smart and especially with the fact that she can help navigate because she knows the stars. And she says that too, where she says, don't worry, I can, you know, help us, you know, get to where we need to go because I, I know the stars. Yes. So I think she was an excellent character. Mm-hmm. Um, at first when they brought her in, I was like, oh no, is she going to be the love interest? But that doesn't really happen, which I really liked because I feel like, I feel like movies just generally just... They're always shoving love in your face. Like, you have to fall in love. You have to be with the person that's perfect with you. But in reality, I feel like there needs to be more emphasis on the Scott Pilgrim ideology. You know, the power of loving yourself, of self-respect. Yeah. Um, So I feel like having that not be the case was perfect. And I loved it so much. And it made me just go like, oh, you know what? I can't argue about this movie that much. It's one thing that I thought I was going to be able to argue about this movie. But no, it didn't even happen. So I enjoyed it that much more. Interesting that you point that out about love interests. So the owls that some of the characters pair off with and mate with in the series, they are not featured in the film. I don't know if that's because they're not featured in the three books or if that was just a choice by uh, Zack Snyder together with Catherine Lasky to just go... We have enough characters to make a nice, tight story, and we can kind of play around a little bit with 
you know, having that will they, won't they feeling between certain characters, but we don't need to actually do that because they're still kids. We can save that for when they are adults in the sequels. Yeah. Kind of like what we have in Redwall with Cornflower and Matthias. Are you kidding me? Cornflower sort. and Redwall were totally a couple from the beginning. I said sort of, Miles. Wasn't even close. Okay. They were they were subtle about it, yes. But, but then they as were it absolutely keeps going, a couple. Yeah, yeah. Because Cornflower gives uh, Matthias the scarf and says, here, you will wear my colors and be my knight. Which That is totally <laughs> them being a couple. It, it wasn't like, oh, you know, hint, hint, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. That is like shoving a pie in your face. <laughs> I more reference that in the sense of, I suppose I should have phrased that more in the sense of they could have gone that route. And I feel that they kind of do that with Soren and Ochaliza, one of the owls that he meets when they get to uh, the to the Guardians. But again, she's not who he pairs up with in the actual story. So they probably just ended up doing that to just still have that part of a story that you're just supposed to have. You don't have to have it. You don't have to have it, but it always ends up happening anyways. No, it doesn't have to, and this just proves it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyways, we'll move on <laughs> with the rest of our characters. So then we'll have uh, Twilight, who is voiced by Anthony <coughs> LaPaglia, the, huh, I guess you could say, bard of the group. Yes. Nice, big, strong owl who also seems to love singing. The warrior poet. Yes, the warrior. Yes, the warrior poet. Or as I like to call him, the Altamere. Because that's my D&D character, who's a warrior prolet. <laughs> what did you think about Twilight? Well, it's a terrible movie, but the character is great. Uh, I walked right into that one. Yes, you did. <sighs> yes, I did. You can't throw these softballs at me, my friend. I'm just going to knock them out of the park. Yep. <laughs> uh, personally, I do like Twilight a lot. Um, I liked him way more than I thought I would. Uh, he's not a good bard, and he's not a bad bard but he manages to like walk that line of being right in between both of them that it actually makes it very enjoyable so okay so like what's your definition between a good bard and a bad bard then he's not an excellent singer uh -huh. songwriter performer right so he's not necessarily fulfilling the bard qualities yeah well that's the thing he's he walks that line where he can be good mm -hmm. and he can be bad Okay, so it I would see. be like, I'm going to throw some D&D &D terms out here. Everything that happens in D&D &D happens on 20-sided die, right? Right. Whether you succeed or fail depends on your, uh, your role of that D20. And this is a case where, like, if you had a character where if you rolled something odd, mm -hmm. which would be like 1, 3, 5, right. you would add a minus 13 to your score. Oh. If you rolled a positive, oh. you would add 13 to your score. Okay, I see. So he's either black or white. He's good or he's bad, but at the same time, he's doing both. I see. And that's what makes it enjoyable to me. Okay, I see. I wasn't sure if maybe it was that he's someone, he's a person who had a really, really bad charisma score and just decided that, no, they're going to be a bard anyways. They've got... 
like a 15 in strength and they have like a seven in charisma, but damn it, they're going to be a bard. It's like the magician, the greatest cage fighter ever throwing his spears saying magic missile. Oh no, you're talking about cutting off people's heads going color spray. Fear my arcane might. That, uh, no, I don't think. That was the wizard. Yeah, that was the the, the wizard is what he's (laughs) called, not the magician. That's right, the wizard. (laughs) But yes, you're right. Yes. That that's exactly what I was thinking of too, um, so yeah. So that Twilight, and I mean he's a huge big owl. I think he was a great with. horn, wasn't he? I don't think he's a horn, but he is. De- but he was definitely one of the greater, like bigger ones, because he doesn't have horns. Mm. I don't recall exactly which type of owl he was. I know that they have that information written down somewhere. Perhaps I should have done that. That's a, that's a you know, on my bad part for not marking that specifically. Anyways, moving on to our next uh, part of the main group uh, of party members. <laughs> we have Digger, voiced by David Wenham, who, uh, now this one I do at least remember, he's a burrowing owl. Yes. Because... He digs, and that is his thing. He's a little odd. He's very twitchy. Yes, he is. He actually reminds me of uh, Noel. Noel? From, uh, from Atlantis. Yes. Oh, 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 you mean Mole. Mole, yeah. Mole. <laughs> well, of course, they both dig, right? Well, that, and they're twitchy, and they're quirky. Yeah, I can definitely see that. So what did you think, then, about Digger? I liked his character. I thought he was pretty good. Um, mm-hmm. You said to me that he kind of feels like a Dale Gribble. Personally, I don't think that. He he seems to have certain characteristics that remind me of Dale. But you're right in that he is not Dale Gribble. Yeah. I think it's more... It's, he's once kind he of a starts... conspiracy theorist, but... Or he's a bit of a theorist, I guess you could say. Well, he's a little odd right and then there's the other part with the fact that he's a burrowing owl so he's just like burrowing around and things like that it's just that as soon as he started burrowing around and just kicking uh dirt and things like that at people i was just kind of like pocket sand i guess so well i would say that he is probably my favorite character and i will say that this owl is going places (laughs) yeah whether they be underground or overground absolutely (laughs) now that we have finished the party uh, now, I guess we'll move more into, I guess, the supporting the secondary people, but not really, considering that first we have to get through our antagonists, starting with Naira, voiced by Helen Mirren. Uh, she is the queen of the Pure One, so her mate is Metalbeak, and she is the one who runs St. Agelius School for Orphan Dowels, and picks out those that are worthy enough to join the pure ones to be soldiers and all of that. What'd you think of her? Personally, I see her as a very classic feudal lord. I was also weirded out by the fact that they were using bats. That was kind of a strange thing. Uh, oh, oh, you mean with the fact that they're using the owls to get the flex, like the, the little magnets and whatnot to put them together? Yeah, so they don't necessarily... Like what they say is that because, um, because bats don't have a gizzard, that means that they're not affected by the magnets, whereas owls do have a gizzard and that's what it messes with them. And so then it just, like, it doesn't seem to kill them. It just 
screws with their heads and just, you know, makes them all really loopy and they can't really do anything. And according to the Army of Darkness, uh, they won't be uh, killed by skeletons who have no legs that are crawling around on the ground with a knife in their mouth. Because they'll, they'll cut your gizzard out. Oh, right. What did you think of her in the sense of her, like, as a villain or even just her place in the pure ones? I mean, I know you say, like, very much feels like a feudal lord, but what, what do you mean specifically by that? Well, she um, she acts like she's the cream of the crop. She's the best of the best. She's at the top and everybody else is at the bottom because that's where their places are. So that gives me that okay. whole sense of this is... She just understands her place in the pecking order. Yes. And Even though there are there, no right? turkeys there, she knows. What do you mean there's no turkeys? Well, it's burgers. Oh. Oh. Well, I was just saying... You know, I was just saying <laughs> that because You're the one who said pecking order. <laughs> yes, because they're owls. <laughs> I was... It was the correct term to use, damn it. <laughs> sure. <laughs> <coughs> you can give that hoot if you want. Mm-hmm. Then we have her mate of Metalbeak, who is voiced by Joel Egerton. So he's the one who is part, who is the leader of the Pure Ones. According to the stories, um, Lies of Keel tore off his beak, and that's the reason why he wears the helmet that has a metal beak on it, so that you can't see that he doesn't have a real beak anymore. He definitely gave me Clooney the Scourge vibes. See, more red wall. Yeah. But uh, at the same time, the whole... Uh, mask with the beak thing mm -hmm. definitely reminded me of the uh the fox oh yeah the, the fox um slager the slaver yeah him yeah, that's what it is yeah right him well especially because um that's because of his running with the snake isn't it and that's why he wear it because doesn't he wear a mask or something too because he got he survived the encounter with asmodeus partially um he was also heavily disfigured from the fact that he had to crawl through the, all of that boiling oil or um, boiling water or whatever that was put in the hole. Right. Because the fact, right. Because he had to, or what was it? It was pudding. Boiled pudding. Yeah, it was some sort of food uh, that they poured down the hole. And of course, he wanted to escape with his life. So he crawled through that, burnt himself horribly, disfiguring himself. And then he got attacked by Asmodeus on the other side and somehow managed to get away. Yes. Somehow. Um, <laughs> so again, just tying into that red wall, huh? All right. Um, so then with what we got with Metal Beak, what were your, what, what were you thinking about him? Well, he's your classic, uh, Hitler, I guess you could say. He thinks he's the best and his species is the best because he's on top and everybody else is beneath him. Interesting thing about this is that, so the whole... <laughs> Actually, I suppose this does make even more sense than with kind of Hitler um, analogies. So the whole thing with the pure ones is that Titos are all pure ones. Metalbeak himself is not a Taito owl. He is not a barn owl. He's a he's a sooty owl. So Irony. probably same like catch sort of area of the type of owls as barn owls but he's not a barn owl which therefore means he's not a taito so he's not a pure one himself yeah definitely fits that hiller uh, analogy then <laughs> uh, wasn't hiller actually jewish no he was um i don't think so i can't say that for certain because i can't remember and some of that might be trying to separate fiction from like you know non-fiction historical 
accounts and whatnot. Fair enough. Well, let's carry on then. Yeah. And then our last mm, antagonist, we could say, is Alamir, who is voiced by Sam Neill. So this is the spy master, in a sense, even though they don't use that term, for the Guardians. And we don't really know that until we start putting the pieces together when Eglinton tells Soren that no... I wasn't rescued, I was presented to the owl that brought me back. And then, oh God, as Admiral Akbar says, it's a trap. Um, but, but we do see him interact earlier in the film with, uh, with Metal Beak. And so we, so we know about it, but at the same time... It was kept kind of vague. Yeah. Um, I feel like I should have made that connection early on when they showed his outline. Honestly, but I guess the screen was just a little too small or it was just a little too dark on the screen, a little too bright where we were to actually make that connection. No, I'm going to say that that was deliberately framed that way so that you couldn't tell. Like even his voice, I feel that Sam Neill was putting on a slightly different intonation with how he was talking to Metal Beak. And then when we see him at the tree... Because I didn't notice it either. The first, like the first time I saw it, I didn't make that connection. And then in repeat viewings, I'm like, what? How did I miss that? That thing that happened for 10, 15 seconds. So I'm going to say it wasn't the TV. I'm going to say that you missed it because he's a good spy. Fair enough. I can't argue that. <laughs> Let's carry on to the, uh, All right, the so, good guys again. Yeah. So our, good owls. Are, yes, the good owls. I guess we'll go with the the um, what we have is Ezelrib or Lies of Keel being his, I guess, actual name, um, who is voiced by Jeffrey Rush. So he is the um, he's Lies of Keel. He is the hero of the chronicles that and the stories that Soren is obsessed with. And of course, when Soren meets him, he's this sort of like Digger. He's this, this quirky, quirky, really weird and uh, obviously has scars and things like that from past battles and things like that. And probably has some trauma with him to, to go along with that. It just manifests more in that. Oh, you know, grandpa's kind of a little nuts sometimes and just, you know, shouts random things or whatever. Or is just very blunt and in your face as opposed to say the wrong thing to him. And all of a sudden he's just like snaps and then just starts strangling you or something. Yeah. What did you what did you feel about him? I really like that he survived the war and he doesn't like the war, but he's still willing to fight. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like this is a sort of a character model that a lot of stories didn't do as well as they definitely did in this. Mm -hmm. and this is kind of the standard I'd like to see things put at, because usually when you hear about that soldier that survived the war, he's either completely broken or totally mm -hmm. fine and well-adjusted. Right. It's not that like... You know, there's issues with him and he's going to tell people like, hey, look, war is shit. War is hell. You should not do this. But if you're going to do it, do it well. 
Yeah. So he really fits that uh, that role extremely well. And I really enjoyed that. And I feel like a lot more people should be doing this kind of role. As in just having that soldier who they are adjusted enough that they can function in day-to-day society, but you still know that they're messed up. Exactly. Right. I mean, working at Wholesale Sports, I've ran into a lot of people like that. Right. And like you can see it. You can you can see it in their mannerisms, the way that they talk and the way that they act, that there is something that still bugs them. Mm-hmm. But they are able to push it away enough to be able to interact with society, uh, talk with people, can make connections and still live. But you can still tell that it bugs them. And it's it's that chip on their shoulder, that, that thing that they can't get rid of. Mm. It's the monkey on the back for them. Right. And one of the other cool things that I like about that is that we have two characters that are like that. So we're going to jump into the other character who is like that, Grimble, who is voiced by Hugo Weaving. Incidentally, Hugo Weaving voices two owls in this. He uh, he also voices um, Soren and Clud's father. But considering that he's only in for like a couple scenes... It was nice of them to give him something that had a little bit more meat as well, which of course gives us Grimble, who is uh, one of the owls that works at St. Agelius. So he works for the Pure Ones. Um, and when he separates Soren and Sylphie from the others, part of that is because I'm fairly certain he knew that they were wise to the moon blinking and were very specifically trying to not trying to fight back and so he saw them and was like yes these are the ones these are the ones that will finally help me get revenge on the pure ones for what they have done to me and what they have made me do for them sort of thing so what did you think of him so i find it very interesting that hugo even did both the father and this character Mm -hmm. because it kind of adds that thing of like as the uh elf owl says sylphie you know, why should we trust him? He goes, no, I think we should definitely trust him because ah, he sounded like his father. Right. <laughs> so that's, that's actually not a bad very way to look clever, at it too. Yeah. A, a very clever thing to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, understandably that both didn't have huge roles. So putting both of them together in this way worked very well. And Hugo Weaving is, uh, he, again, similar to what uh, Sam Neill was doing as Alamir, where he is, you know, he has a very noble way of presenting himself when he is with the Guardians. And then when he's talking to Metalbeak, he's, you know, a little bit more villain sounding. Like there's a little bit, there is less nobility. Well, he still changed his voice. Exactly. And and the same thing with Grimble and uh, Soren's father. They, They don't sound the same, even though it is the same voice that is doing both. Yeah, but there's still times where you meet people that sound like other people, mm-hmm, too. Mm-hmm, so it, mm-hmm. it still works. Yep. Um, like I said, I like this character. I, I just wish we had a little more, more time with them to kind of flesh them out a bit. I felt it was just a little short. Yeah, I think this is one of the issues that you run into when, of course, you're adapting three books to put into one film, right? So I'm pretty sure that Grimble is a way larger character in the books because... From the way it's presented in the film, when he separates Sylphie and Soren and says that he's going to teach them how to fly whenever they have downtime, that makes it seem like they're going to do it, 
immediately, and they learn how to fly in five minutes. It was less than that. <laughs> it was well, like 30 seconds. Well, sure. But, I mean, you know what I mean, right? Yeah. Even though time has obviously passed because Clud is also being trained how to fly, and Naira even is, gives the him and the other uh, new Taitos a task of showing who is the best flyer. So obviously that did not happen in five minutes. It takes as long as it needs to. <laughs> yes, yes, it does. <laughs> well, let's carry on now to Miss P. Uh, yes, who is our kind of the last of, I would say, the main characters in the sense. Even though, again, she doesn't really have a huge role. Mrs. P, uh, who's voiced by Miriam Margolis, is the nursemaid uh, in Soren's nest. So she was there to look after uh, Soren and Clud when they were hatchlings. And then when Eglinton was born, uh, she was still there to look after them as well. I, I have no idea why they went with a snake. I... I think it was just to sort of throw a bone into the soup. Um, you know, by all means, sure, you can't eat it, but it gives it some nice flavor. So, <laughs> Especially with the fact that when she rejoins the story, she is introduced as dinner by Twilight because he's going to eat her. <laughs> and then we can't because... And people no. say I can't be poetic. <laughs> <laughs> I, so, I mean, okay, so outside of the fact that she's a snake, you know, what did you think about her place in the story? I mean, I think it was fine. Uh, she did kind of act as the uh, the nanny, I guess you'd say, teaching the uh, owls, like, hey, look, this is what happens when you eat. This is what happens afterwards. Like, you can't digest it. You spit this up, and it's normal. It's weird, but it's normal. So, Sort of like me being a snake here looking after owlets and hatchlings. It's yeah. weird. But it's normal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, just just go along with it. Don't worry. Don't, don't ask too many questions. You know, it's fine. It's right, fine. right, right, right. There are, again, some... There are quite a few other characters in here, such as uh, Jet and Jut, the, the two... Well, maybe they're brothers, but I'm not necessarily sure. Those are the two guys that snatch up Soren and Clud, and they're the ones that are, you know, trying out different looks and voices to try to intimidate... Definitely, Everybody. They're definitely brothers in arms. Yes. Or yes. wings in this case. Yes, they certainly are. Um, actually, uh, since we're still here, so what did you think of Jet and Jet? I mean, those guys, so they're trying to come across as being evil, right? Because of how they act towards all the owlets that they're snatching up, right? But then there's always this whole, ooh, I'm going to try this. I'm going to try out my intimidator and things like that. Or I'm going to, you know, try this new scowl and this new voice. What did you think? Do you think it sounded good? Well, I guess you could refer to that as humanizing the enemy. <laughs> mm. But, uh, you know, at the same time, they are still technically people. Uh, or owls in this case. <laughs> and, you know, they have their things. They have their quirks. I mean, how many times did are there stories recalled about people who crossed the enemy lines and saw... Like two Germans sitting smoking and one of them starts singing a song and the other one joins in because they recognize it. Right. What if those songs actually came from America too? Like, mm -hmm. you know, they are people. It It's messy. And you understand that these everybody has their own characteristics and their own traits. So I thought it was deserved. An interest and it yeah. really adds to it. So 
An interesting thing that I feel to point out is that we don't see Jet and Jet fight. So like when they come together and they're having the fight at the end, they aren't really referenced afterwards, which makes me wonder if they're very much kept over in, you know, at the school and then you have a separate area where you take all of the pure one soldiers and they continue their training there. And they're just, they work for the pure ones. So they're enabling and everything, but they are not pure ones. Therefore, they don't even use them as feather fodder for some reason, or talon fodder, I believe was the term that uh, lies used. Um, well, they serve their purpose and they do their job, right? That's so, true. That's true. What more can you ask from a good, obedient soldier lapdog? What indeed? Although, okay, so that's that's a good lead in for another thing that I really want that I really want to talk about for this. So, what are your thoughts on how certain subject matters are approached in this film? I'll just quickly say that one of the things that I like about Snyder's work is that he is not very subtle when it comes to his storytelling. Um, I feel that he puts his thoughts and interpretations of complex ideas and portrays them in as blunt a way as possible. Do you think that that is an appropriate way to tackle more sub, uh, mature subject matters such as indoctrination or subjugation? Or even fascism? Well, I mean, it goes in every direction. Mm -hmm. Indoctrination is just technique. It's not necessarily a, uh, you know, it doesn't lead to fascism. It doesn't lead to communism. It, it can be either, either, or there. Mm -hmm. um, doesn't lead to capitalism? No, but I mean, by all means, indoctrination <laughs> can be, can lead to capitalism as well. Mm -hmm. Or any religion. Yep. Um, personally... I think it's a good stepping stone to, that uh, Snyder used and did this, but I also feel it was kind of a little too black and white in an area that could be gray. But I still think it was good because it introduces the subject mm -hmm. and it shows the subject, but I would be a little bit cautious about it because you can end up uh, forcing your opinion of the subject on the people without giving them the choice and seeing that there's an option. Okay. So in this case, by all means, <laughs> they're showing that fascism is bad and that this other group's way of doing things is good. The, mm -hmm. the, the what do you call them? The, With the, 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 the guardians, guardians, right? Yeah, the guardians. So I'm not saying that fascism is good, but they're not showing that, you know, they're using basically similar techniques Mm -hmm. to achieve a same similar goal you know they've they castize their system much like the tau do in warhammer 40k mm -hmm. now it doesn't mean that it's a bad thing but i mean there's a caste system in the imperial guards as well or in the human system as well mm -hmm. and you don't really leave your system because that's the way it is well i mean <laughs> the way they present it with the guardians is that so i mean with the pure ones, if you are not a Taito, you are not a pure one. Therefore, you will not be able to rise above, you know, being a picker. You are going to be moon blinked. You are going to be turned into a slave. Whereas with the Guardians, they're like, you made it here? Okay, that's great. That proves that um, 
you have a very strong personality, which is good, and you won't mind when we tell you, hey, yes, I know you really want to be a fighter, but you are way better at being a scout, so you're going to be a spy. And that's where we're going to train you because that's where your true talents lie. Maybe you really, really, really want to be a fighter, but we're here to tell you, no, don't do that because you can be so much better if you do this thing because you are really good at this thing. Yeah, but again, like I said, it's... So when it comes to the whole caste system and they get put in their place, mm-hmm. again, it doesn't, it doesn't matter about you doing what you're good at. I mean, let's take it for instance, I am good at HVAC. Mm-hmm. But I hate it. And it comes to a point where eventually I'm going to screw up more and more because I just dislike it so much that it's going to cause problems. Right. So regardless of if you're good at something or not, if you have no interest in it, you can screw it up and that causes its own issues. So their system isn't as right as the other. Of course. And I mean, in a way, it's not that we don't get certain elements of gray, like, would you not view Alamir as more of a gray um, element then? Because he's a guardian, but he's willing to betray them because he has greater aspirations. He wants to be the leader of the guardians. He wants to be the king. No, because evil always fights itself. No matter what you do, mm. evil will always fight itself. And that's a trope from D&D that we always see. Because evil, if, if evil never stopped, if evil ever stopped fighting itself, then it would it's win. Not, yeah. And then it will no longer be evil, it yeah. will be the right way. Yeah. Which, I mean, is another interesting thing because of, in a way, that is a good way to portray fascism. Because that is one of the reasons why not, the Nazis kind of fell apart the way they did, is because they just kept fighting. Because... This person felt that he was right. That person felt that they were right. And then they just try to sabotage the other so that they can actually be right. Yep. And that's the big issue with it. Well, I mean, is that... So still going back to the desensitizing aspect, though. So you very much do feel that having it being so bleak of they're wrong, we are right, is not... is a detriment to it as well because you're still basically saying our way is the correct way don't do it another way well again i like the idea that Zack snyder's portraying of showing you like hey look there are these two things and they're both doing the same thing which is trying to survive mm-hmm. and they do it different ways and the fact that you dissent or the fact that you make one black the other white I mean, it's a lot like a lot of video games these days. Uh, Mm. The Outer Worlds is the first one that comes to mind where you either have a world that you can join that is an absolute, I would call it a feudalistic uh, enterprise Mm -hmm. where it's like a company-owned world and you support the company in everything you do. And then your other view is... The hippies that just live in the forest and live in the trees and there's nothing that really cares about, there's no real care about money. And it's so black and white. And that Mm kind of desensitizes everything and it's not right. DJ DJ Peach Cobbler did an awesome video on this on why he likes the Stalker series for its uh, factions. It's because they are not black and white. Mm -hmm. Sure, duty is full of people who are kind of militaristic, kind of as in very. Mm -hmm. And they want to destroy the zone. They feel that it is their purpose. 
But when the zone kicks out these chimeras that are able to wipe out 30, 40 stalkers, mm-hmm. not get stopped, and leave, and you get controllers that are able to dominate you and turn you into a zombie to do their bidding, like, you have to destroy the zone. What's your other option? And then you get Freedom, who everybody kind of looks at as, the, oh, they're the pot-smoking hippies because they have names like... Uh, uh, snitch, uh, ganja was another one. And like, you know, they, they have some of these like really weird names, but in reality, their ideology is, well, the zone is here. There's no way we're going to kill it. We have to find a way of coexisting with it. But at the same time, we still have to protect ourselves from it because just like in the environments in the real world, we have to carve out what we can live in. Yeah. And the zone seems to be somewhat okay with that. As long as we don't take too much. I find that interesting that people immediately think that that's the hippie thing because of the fact that they just say, we can't get rid of it. Because I sit there and I go, that's not, I don't feel like that's necessarily a hippie thing. That That is just a pragmatic way of looking at it. The zone is here. It's been created. We just, You got a deal. You just got a deal. Yes. Life uh, changes. I think they call it a hippie thing because their name is freedom. Yeah. And they actually hold the values of freedom over top of all. Right. Uh, which does kind of lead them to align with bandit or be okay with bandit bandits in that. Because right. Because it of, just happens. It's part of the, the, the society, you know. Yeah. Um, well, since we're kind of on this topic then, um, and, you know, again, with the whole black and white and desensitize, desensitization. So do you think that these subjects that we're looking at, indoctrination, subjugation, or even just fascism, uh, they should be explored more in stories like, like what we have here that are aimed towards younger audiences? Well, yeah, I think it's especially important that we have more things like this the farther we get from World War II. Uh, I mean, take a look right now. We get Americans that don't realize that there was a whole war fought against the, you know, the idea of Americanism and fascism are two separate things. And they seem to struggle with this ideology that there was a war fought about it. And I don't know, I think the values are the same. Or the fact that they seem to think that Antifa are actual fascists, despite the fact that Antifa is anti-fascism. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I guess that's indoctrination for you. I mean, take a look at uh, everybody saying, oh, communism is going to destroy the economy. And yet here we are where the economy is only going forward because of the fact that it cannot fall. It cannot fail, right? No, no, not at all. The economy is going as it is and it will keep failing because the economy has to crash. It's going to crash again. It crashed twice in our lifetimes. Three, if you count, you know, COVID. Right. Uh, four, if you want to count the fact that if you were 10 years older. Right. So yes. at the end of the day, you know, they keep saying, oh, the economy will fail because communism will bring it down. When in reality, communism means there will not be an economy. Right. Because of the fact that everyone will be together and everything will be getting done and no one will be above the other. Exactly. So it's sort of that irony of, you know, that we kind of recognize that our parents were told one thing, shown one thing, and how far that could be from the truth. So in that way, then, so would you say then that this is 
very much trying to have as complex of a story as it can, but still something that is relatable to all ages. Yes. And it walks a very thin, hard line to do so. Mm -hmm. But I think it did it very well. Nice. Uh, By all means, I could say, oh, it could have been more complex, but that's just because I'm older. When we're talking about an age group of, uh, let's say... 8 to 12? Yeah, 8 to 12. I think that this is perfect. It asks questions, it presents values, it shows uh, differing points of views on a similar uh, playing field. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, it does choose one over the other, which we'll talk about that later. But, Mm -hmm. uh, (laughs) you know, I don't think it did anything wrong, that wrong. So on that note... This is something that stuck out to me as something that I really liked. And we talked about this when we were talking about the characters. What are your thoughts on how the reality of war is presented through the characters of Grimble and Ezelrib, or, you know, Lies of Keel? So, war, especially when we were growing up, got re-glorified. Even though in the Vietnam War, it did not get re-glorified, it got horrified i guess you could say right and uh i guess it's another cycle uh good old conservationism uh it's a cycle (laughs) that's gonna happen and uh we are kind of seeing more of that war is ugly Mm -hmm. and we need to kind of keep our eyes and try not to do it and this is the perfect example of why these people have seen war they know it's horrible they know that they may have to do it again or that they have to stand up and keep things peaceful Mm -hmm. but like the characters are so well done for it i i feel like they're perfect Uh, especially those two because they don't want to fight they want to have peace but then when they're showing look this peace is no longer an option it's it's going to be completely dominated by somebody else and we just let them roll over us and things will change or else we do this, we fight, we get it over with, and hopefully we can get back to the life we had before. And like I said, I think they did an awesome job of it. And even uh, who is the, the, the mentor there? Well, it's it's uh, Lies, Lies, right? Lies Akil, because he's the yeah. one who Soren notices his stamp for he's the one who's writing the Chronicles. And then he's like, now, wait a minute. So you wrote the Chronicle for the that one battle that I'm always, you know, going on and on about where Lies of Keel fought Metalbeak. Yeah. Yep, that's right. That's me. And it's like, well, you're not who I expected. And then he's like, oh, what were you expecting? You were expecting I was going to be here, a hero and I was going to be glorious? Well, that's not what war is. Exactly. And I like that they show that and they, they're showing people the aftermath of what a war could be. Mm-hmm. And that's why I say that as we get farther from World War II, we need to have more of this in the media. Yes. It needs to be thrown out there more that like, hey, look, war is not glorious. War is not uh, something that people should look up to. That's one thing that I loved about 1917. Mm-hmm. You know, like these soldiers are just doing their jobs and it it's ugly. It's super ugly. It's gross. It's dirty. Well, again, the thing that always really gets me like if i was to say that i had a favorite character 
my favorite character actually is Grimble because he is that person who, you know, he he represents um, kind of the idea of uh, the road to hell is paved with good intentions because he fought against the pure ones when they came to his kingdom and he continued to fight and then they saw how strong his will was and then they said, okay, we're going to hold your family hostage and you have to do our bidding and we will not kill them. And so then by the time he meets with Soren and Sylphie and is telling them his story and he's like, I've done horrible things and I hate myself because I allowed it to happen because all of the promise that they're keeping my family alive and honestly their family his family probably got killed immediately yes and they you know maybe just kept up the pretense or whatever i get the feeling at a certain point even though he says to them i'm gonna go and try to free my family i feel like he was probably saying that for their benefit of not admitting to children that yes this is how brutal and horrible the pure ones are my family's been dead for years yeah because i can't really think of any other animated films that have a character like that or at least ones that are all ages the only ones that i could immediately think of would be something like watership down and watership down is very much in its own category See, Redwall is kind of a similar thing, isn't it? Um, actually, that's yeah, that's a good but point. But again, Redwall is kind of its own thing too, because Redwall is a Canadian author, and uh, he did. Kind Brian Jock is a that. Brian Jock is a British author. British? I thought he was Canadian. No, nope. I thought he's British Canadian. No, I well, maybe he maybe he did come to Canada, and that's why Redwall was done through Canadian groups and everything, <laughs> as in the animated series. Um, but he is from Britain. Okay. But still, like, if, if you think of something like Wolf Walkers or um, Secret of the Kells or even just, like, Disney films and any that are trying to be like Disney films, they're not going to have a character like that. Or if they do, he's not going to be focused on the way, he, the way Grimble was. Or even the way Liza Keel is focused on. It's very true. But then again, they don't want to portray that ugliness. They want to keep it more pure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Although, actually, that's something else that, uh, with making that comparison, something else that is very different, and again, is like kind of a signifier of a Zack Snyder work. Soren kills Metalbeak. He does not try to not kill him. And that makes sense because he's a terrible person. He's done all sorts of atrocities and like, what's he going to do? Try to redeem him? But that's the thing, Miles. That's usually what happens in these sorts of things. If you think about TV shows, if you think about other films that are for kids, they don't kill the bad guy. They find some way to redeem them. They throw them in prison or whatever, and they try to hug it out. Mm, Not totally true. Well, what I are think some you're counter examples? I think you're confusing uh, protagonists with paragons. Okay. So you're... by all means, uh, Aang is a person who is a paragon. He wants people to follow him and, can, and you know, work things out. Same with Captain America, also a paragon. He wants to heal things and make it work out. Wolverine, not a paragon, does not want to heal and make things work out. 
Okay, yes, you're right. Batman tries to be a paragon. <laughs> Doesn't really work that well, though. Depends. And that's kind of why the stories keep going. Well, I think that also depends on which type of Batman we're following here. Again, you know, again, another Zack Snyder thing. Uh, <laughs> considering that the whole point of of his arc with Batman is that Batman has fallen from grace. That's why he brands people. That's why he uses guns. That's why he kills people because he's lost all hope. And then his hope is reaffirmed after he almost kills Superman and finds out that he's become everything that he sought to combat in the first place. And then from that point on, he has to try to redeem himself because he has been shown that he's wrong. Now, Superman also kills. Yes, he does. And he, he well, he may not necessarily kill all the time, but he gets rid of the threats. Yes. And the problems. I would argue the same with Flash as well. Mm-hmm. Hawkeye. So, I mean, we have Captain America, and we... It's interesting what that you would the say that... the of the galaxy? <laughs> well, okay, so it's I'm interesting... I'm sorry, Cameron, but you're like... No, 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 no. Like, you keep going with superheroes in comic books, right? But when I think about something like She-Ra, for example, the new... Have you seen She-Ra? Yes. Okay. And she's a paragon. Yeah. Catra does... She's not a protagonist, does... she's, a, she's a paragon, which is a type of protagonist. So, like, because Catra does horrible things that, in my opinion, are kind of irredeemable, but the end of the series has her, you know, joining up with everyone, and everyone's just cool with the fact that lots of people are dead because of things she did. Yes. And I just sit back and I'm like, no! I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand why, why, why we have to be accepting of this. Is there something wrong with saying this person did horrible things that we are not going to gloss over? Yes, but you also got to remember that this, that whole story trope, or not the trope, but the whole story revolves around the fact that those two are actually basically in love. Okay, yes, that's... So she, so Shira wants her to be redeemed so she can have something with her. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that sets kind of a bad precedent too, though, Miles. Oh, I, I totally agree. <laughs> that's why we haven't done this show, done that show. Well, I mean, we also can't because we've both seen it. Yeah. So we both know what's going on. I feel like maybe we're getting a little bit stuck in the whole Paragon versus Protagonist thing. My point that I was trying to make, especially when it comes to animation, is that generally speaking, your heroes do not kill the bad guys, which of course is also what I feel puts it in similar place as Redwall, because Matthias kills a lot. Matthias and Matameo. Well, actually not Matameo, but... Uh, and Martin. 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 Like, their whole point is that they are warriors and they do have to kill if if it comes down to it. He kills Asmodeus and he kills Clooney as well. But if we take a look at a meta perspective of the whole thing, the reason why they're not killing is because they don't want to come up with more characters. Because whenever you kill a character, you have to make a new one or are, else the story ends. Are you sure it's not also just the fact that they don't want to have something that kids are going to watch and they see that, yes, it's okay, you can kill the bad guy? Which, now that I say that out loud, seems kind of weird considering that video games have a lot of violence where you kill a lot of people. Sometimes they just make it seem like you're not killing the bad Oh, you are. 
like Batman when he grabs people and flips them upside down. Oh, yeah, and just leaves them there for who knows how long or snaps their legs and then just leaves them out in the cold. Hits them with his vehicle. (laughs) Yeah. At like 80 kilometers an hour. They're just incapacitated. Don't worry, you know, it's, you know, rubber, uh, rubber tires, right? Rubber, (coughs) rubber bumper. Rubber bumper. (laughs) Um, um, so that was more the point that I was getting at in that I don't feel that we have enough like this because especially with the way politics seems to be going this day, these days, you have a lot of people, a lot more left, left-leaning people that say we have to stick with decorum. We can't just kill people or whatever for no reason. We have to show tolerance towards them. But then you have the problem of they're not tolerant towards you. So what is the actual justification for keeping them around? That's sort of what I mean. Soren kills Metalbeak because he knows he has to. Well, when you think about it, those characters are truly evil. Because one of the clauses to be evil is to keep the other people who are quote-unquote good around and to show them that your way works. Mm, I see. So it's just showing that evil actually works. Fair enough. Going on uh, a <laughs> bit of a different track, but still kind of important. So <coughs> this film came out in 2010, and... Due to the nature of it being an animated film, that actually meant that it started production back in like 2006, 2007, which was around the same time that Zack Snyder finished 300. Now, these days, Zack Snyder has a bit of a reputation, if you believe social media, of being pro-fascist due to how dedicated he was to replicating Frank Miller's style from his comic book down to the story beats and the pathos. Um, but then considering that he immediately went from making that film to making this, which I feel is like the complete antithesis to the Spartan ideology, what are your thoughts on that when you hear me say people think Snyder is pro-fascist because he made 300? So 300 was a film about the propaganda that was being portrayed from Spartans to other Spartans. or And also other Greeks as well. Yes. So, of course, it's going to be a pro-fascist film because why would you show people, hey, look, we're the best and we're the badasses, but we lose. So, saying that, if we actually watched the, the, the movie, you realize that the Spartans are actually defeated by somebody who was born and not considered to be good enough to be a Spartan because he had physical deformities. Right. Now, if people think 300 is a pro-fascist film, they clearly are not watching the movie because the only reason why the, fa- the, the, 300, the Spartans lost is because they actually got, you know, they got beat by somebody who gave up one of their giant weaknesses. So, and it was somebody that they didn't accept. Mm -hmm. So therefore, people who don't watch the movie 300 would of course go for seeing from the the commercials and that would be like, oh, this is definitely a pro-fascist film. It's pro-masculinity and all that stuff. It's everything that we're against because they've never seen it. 
Well, at the same time, it also, this is one of the things, and this is why I say more people need to watch this movie, because of the fact that this is the only animated thing that Snyder has done to this point. Um, there he, he has talked about there are some things that he wants to do in the future that will also be animated. But at the time of this recording, this is the only animated film that has been completed that he has been in charge of. But people see, look at his body of work and they see 300 and then they see Watchmen and then they see Sucker Punch, which has its own uh, can of worms that we cannot go into because that will take way too long. Um, and then they look at Man of Steel, Batman v Superman and Justice League and they just say, look at all of the fascist things and objectivist things that Snyder keeps doing. Look at Superman, for example. He's a fascist and he's an objectivist. Look at how, you know, self-serving he was in the, you know, in the Battle of uh, Metropolis. Um, you know, he, he, all these people die because of his actions or, you know, in Superman or in Batman yes. v Superman. He doesn't smile enough. He seems to hate having to save people. What's wrong with him? Yes, he was so selfish in fighting the guy who wanted to terraform the earth and recreate it into his own home world. That is absolutely what somebody who is both a fascist and objectist would do. You know, fight somebody who's trying to instill his own literal world over top of your own. Hmm. Sure. Sounds totally fascist to me. I sure. He's unhappy because people keep coming up and trying to do these things. And he has to keep beating them down because it's not right. <laughs> like, <laughs> I would be unhappy too if I went to somebody's house and was like, hey, look, your furnace isn't working because your filter is dirty. Look, it says on the filter, last time it was replaced was February of 2015. It is now 2022. Of course your furnace isn't going to work. And I pull it out and I slip in a new one and I write the date on. And then in another seven years, I come back because they're having issues. And I go, oh, look, this filter is not, it's dirty. It was replaced in 2022. It is now 20... Nine, you know, why haven't you learned your thing? There's a reason why nowadays, if I go over to somebody's house, I tell them straight up, check your furnace filter. If it's dirty, I'm charging you 200 bucks because I'm sick and tired of telling people change your filters and they're not doing it. They mm. want me to come do it for them. That's not my job. You're going to have to pay for that. Well, and I, well, and I mean, if they want to keep paying the 200 bucks, then I mean, you just let them. Exactly. At least I'd make a pretty penny from it then. <laughs> I don't know. I if just, you're going to waste my time, I at least want money for it. I just, I just wanted to talk about that because again, part of this thing is that no one talks about this movie, which is really frustrating because then you have people that immediately start talking about 300 and about how it's pro-fascist and things like that. And then you have people that have seen this movie and they go, well, okay, did you know that he made a movie that is literally what you're talking about, how we need to show how the fascists are wrong? You can just go and watch this other movie that he made. It's got owls in it. It's great. I don't know. I think Honestly, I think the people who think 300 is a pro-fascist movie are the same people who think men can't be raped. So <laughs> that is honestly, 
I don't like bringing things up like that because the thing that I also hate about those sorts of conversations with those people is that they don't want to have a discussion. They no. tell you you're wrong, they're right, and that's it. There is no further discussion. Then they might go off and cry in the DMs or whatever with other people and go to their own echo chambers and be like, this person's mean to me. They I mean, told me I was wrong. I mean, it's the same thing with the people on the other side, too. Yes. Like these yeah. QAnons and that. I mean, so. well, well, okay. <laughs> I'm not saying you're wrong about that, that, but that is definitely not the first place that I would have gone. I was going to say, in a way, our podcast is its own echo chamber. Yeah. It's true, but as, if people are willing to come up and talk to us about this, we can absolutely talk about it. If you, Well, sure. If you think that we're wrong, then we're not going to tell you that you can't tell us that. We're not just going to block away anyone who says that we're wrong. We're not going to be like that. We might disagree with what you disagree with as well, and that's fine. And, but as long as you're not going to be a jerk about it, then we'll just let you say what you want to say. Of course. Because... If you shut down conversation, then you're not going to make any progress. Exactly. And a lot of people forget that. Although, speaking of a conversation, <laughs> so we haven't talked about... The, I keep saying it's an animated film, right? Yes. We need to, I guess, talk about the fact that it's an animated film. Um, so Animal Logic was the animation studio that was behind this. I'm not at all familiar with their work. <laughs> they made Happy Feet. <laughs> and Charlotte's Wed and Three Hundred. Okay, okay, all right. So Twenty eight weeks later, like they've done, they've done a lot of work. So they did. Okay, the all Matrix right. The Matrix movies, Christ. They worked on the mate. Oh, actually, wait. Yeah, they're a special. That makes company, sense so. because they're an Australian company. Yes. Okay. Okay, that makes a whole lot of. Oh, Farscape, okay. Thin Red Line, Babe, mm, nice. Face Off, hell yeah, Face Off. That was a great movie. Okay, so I mean, when it comes to special effects, right, maybe I'm not as familiar when it comes to stuff like Babe, Thin Red Line, Face Off, and that sort of thing. Happy Feet. I don't know why that didn't just pop out to me. Of course they did Happy Feet, an Australian film, because that's another George Miller film. Okay, so, you know, I'll eat uh, humble pie a little bit, and for whatever reason of just overlooking all of the amazing things that Animal Logic has done and probably continues to do because they do amazing work. Yes, they do. <laughs> I will say that I did love the animation of this and uh, it works extremely well with Schneider's... Uh, I'm going to keep calling it a slow-mo effect. Are you also going to continue to say Schneider instead of Snyder? Yes, Schneider. <laughs> Why? Because my nose is a little plugged and it's kind of hard not to. Okay, so. all right. <laughs> It's not that I want to purposefully butcher your name. It's just that it, you know, it's happening. It's, it's happening. I don't mean to. I've I've now accepted the fact that I'm doing it, but I don't want to. <laughs> All right. But yes, uh, it really works very well with his uh, slow down, speed up technique that mm -hmm. he portrays in his not only fight sequences, but uh, when just they're just flying wherever. through yeah. uh, when they're flying through the storm. Right, yes, when so, he sends him through the, the twister or whatever. He calls it a twister, I think yeah. it's just like an air, yeah. air pocket or something yeah. like that. Sort of like the turtles in Finding Nemo. Mm-hmm, yeah, the there's, there's a, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I think it was perfect for that. And I, I want to see uh, Zach do more work like this, uh, more animation, because I think that his technique is 
unbelievably perfect for this, and I want to see more of that. Now, you're not an anime person, but would you watch a anime-style series done by Zack Snyder? Well, I did like Avatar, uh, both of them. Right. And there are other things that uh, use maybe a similar art style that mm-hmm. uh, I'm okay with. Uh, the thing that I don't like about uh, Japanese anime, I guess I should say, uh-huh. is the culture is just like a little too different for me, and I just don't like the tropes that they portray all the time. Fair enough. Uh, that's the thing I don't really like about it. Hmm. Well, I don't know why... I, oh, I know why I took us into this tangent. I mean, so would you watch an anime-style series by Zack Snyder that is about the uh, Norse pantheon... So Odin, Loki, um, Thor, Thor and, and, and them called Twilight of the Gods. I think I'd check it out. I've, I'd like to see what they're going to do with it. Um, I do like watching shows that involve the North Pantheon. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Norse pa- Pantheon, I should say. Again, my nose is a little plugged up there. Uh, well, I mean, because you... I'd like to see what they do with Aduna because a lot of people don't do Aduna any good. They just sort of be like, oh, here's a god. <laughs> and then they move on because uh, unfortunately with the North Pantheon, uh, it was all basically done by word of mouth. And Aduna kind of was left out except for the fact that she gets abducted and she is the wife of uh, Bragi, uh, Adun's husband Bragi. You know, like she's only defined as the wife of him mm-hmm. even though she's definitely plays a big role and there was a lot of shrines in that to her i mean she was a harvest goddess mm-hmm. uh, to say the least she was the one who made the golden apples that kept the norse to be gods so i would like to see and find out what they do with that or if it's just going to be the same what 12 stories that get told by the north pantheon well I suppose we'll see. I mean, again, this is something that, again, is something that I like about Snyder, is that he tends to not do what everyone expects you to do, because he has his own ideas, and so he goes in and he wants to do them. You know, when he talks about how he wants to do uh, an Arthurian film, he wants to get it right. I mean, what exactly does that mean, considering how many different interpretations there are of the Arthurian mythos, even from century to century? Yeah, it could mean tons of things. <laughs> like, everybody thinks that uh, Excalibur is a longsword, when in reality, it's probably not. It's actually probably a Roman sword. And Excalibur is this is not the sword from the stone. Excalibur is what is given to him by the Lady of the Lake. Exactly. And the sword that he pull, draws from the stone is a different sword, which breaks, which is why he gets the sword from the Lady of the Lake. Again, as much as it is, for me, as much fun as I enjoy talking about Snyder's films and stuff like that. <laughs> let's, again, I'd like to watch that. But, you know, again, that's going to be su- a whole subject for a, another video. Right. I mean, all, you're, all you really have to say at this point is that you liked it, the fact that he did something animated. Yes, and I would like to see more. Well, speaking of animated things, since this is a good place to wrap this up, <laughs> I think I remember you telling me a while ago that you have not watched... A lot of Disney movies. You've seen some, I know, because you've dropped hints, but I don't think you've seen a lot of the 
typical Disney films like the princess films, have you? No, not really. I've been meaning to watch all of the Disney films from uh-huh. the start to the finish, uh, uh. from Snow White all the way to now. Well, I feel like I know you've seen some because I know that you have seen some of the Pixar ones and I know you've seen ones released within the last 10 years. But Enchantra was en- amazing. Encanto, you Encanto, mean? yeah. Encanto was amazing. Well, we are going to launch on a fun little project where we're going to bring in a guest where since February is the month of love for some people, and I guess for certain marketing purposes. So with that in mind, we're going to have you watch a bunch of princess movies, Miles. So we've got four weeks, four Thursdays. We're going to have four princess movies for you. Son of a bitch. (laughs) Oh, I know you're going to enjoy it more than you think. Uh, Maybe. We'll see. (laughs) Indeed, we shall. Uh, So that is what everyone here has to look forward to for the next month after this. So um inconceivable media will be going on sort of a hiatus for the month of february and then when we come back in march uh we're going to continue on with what we were we have to continue a discussion on undone yes so come back and uh join us next time when we start watching disney princess movies until then i'm cam and i'm miles (laughs) and we'll see you next time Thank you.